0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught
1: in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Dave Williams, Associate Publisher and Web Director. Today, I'm at the historic ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood with Tim Ives, ASC, to discuss his work on Seasons 1, 2, and 3 of the popular Netflix series, Stranger Things. Tim is a born-and-bred New Yorker, and he started his career in camera work by filming corporate events before freelancing as a production assistant. After relocating to Los Angeles, Tim got his start as a cinematographer in music videos. Over the next decade, he continued to shoot music videos and commercials. In 1999, he shot the independent feature Dinner Rush, which initiated his transition into longer format visual storytelling. Tim eventually made his way into television and back to New York. He shot the pilot for the action crime miniseries Kingpin, followed by pilots for Blue Bloods, Mr. Robot, and Manifest. He also photographed episodes of the popular series House of Cards, Power, and How to Make it in America, as well as much of the HBO comedic drama Girls. His recent work can be seen in the FX biographical miniseries Fosse Verdon. Since 2016, Tim has photographed Stranger Things, which pays homage to many 1980s genre films, including E.T. The Extraterrestrial, shot by Alan Davio, ASC, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, photographed by Vilmos Zygmunt, ASC, Poltergeist. Photographed by Matthew F. Leonetti, ASC, and Stand By Me, photographed by Thomas Del Ruth, ASC. For his work on Stranger Things, Tim received 2017 and 2018 Emmy nominations for Outstanding Cinematography for a Single Camera Series, one hour. Other cinematographers on the show include Tom Campbell and David Franco. Tim has split cinematography duties on season three with Lachlan Milne, ACS. We're here at the ASC Clubhouse with Tim Ives. Hi. And we're here to discuss uh, your work on the show Stranger Things and, and other projects. Tim, people often, often overlook the fact that all cinematographers are also film fans. Right. How does your personal fandom play into your creative approach to Stranger Things? And it's, it's fascinating that it was instantly embraced by audiences as this amazing homage to this certain strain of 1980s movies.
0: Right. Well... Um, being a film fan, my my um my history goes back earlier than than the eighties as far as when I first started noticing and appreciating cinematography. And I think I was ten when I saw Butch Cassidy, uh, Conrad Hall's film. Um, and still to this day, it's uh, I mean, it's a gorgeous film, and uh, there's a classic style of photography that he employed most of his films. Actually, Hal Ashby's films also were very inspiring to me uh, in the seventies. And then when you get into references for Stranger Things, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious at this point that uh, from season one, it was really uh, elements of uh, Stand By Me and, uh, and uh, E.T. and even a little bit of Raiders, which we're all, you know, anytime we can do a shot, that is something that Douglas Slocum would have done. You know, it's, uh, we're pretty excited about it. But I heard about this film E.T. coming out. I didn't know what it was about, but I heard it was supposed to be great. And it just blew me away. I was like, you know, it was a teenager and I was there, you know, trying not to show that I was a little, little teary, but it really um, has been the the rock of reference for Stranger Things. Alan Davios uh, was the cinematographer of that. Yeah, you're your touchstone in a lot of ways. Yes, for sure. I showed it to my uh, children again. They all saw it, but when I got the call for Stranger Things, we all looked at E.T. together and I wanted to see if it still resonated. If the look of it would still resonate with a younger crowd, they were all, you know, in tears and loving it, and like it's the best movie of all time, and just like everybody says when they see ET, it's a wonderful movie. And the styles of photography in that movie are not really the styles that are, you know, that any film can can have these days, you know, especially these days. It's a it's a it's a period piece and a look that that they went for that that had a bit of artificiality meet uh, as well as naturalism to it. That was. Um, Exactly what we were we were looking for.
1: Well, you could almost kind of uh, you know imagine that the action in Stranger Things takes place one town over <laughs> from where ET took place.
0: Yeah. Well, the Duffers will always describe it, uh, Stranger Things as a love letter to films and cinematography, and and uh, I often uh, say to them that they uh, they are sort of cinematographers in their own way. They're, they you know we're very in sync with with uh, the design of the show and the framing, and there's a bit of a telepathy between us when we're shooting. Uh, when, when we planned a shot and we look at something and, and we're like, "Would be better if it was low versus high," and uh, and look at each other and we're like, "Yeah, it is not." It's uh, I mean, three seasons in, it's it happened toward the end, middle of first season when it clicked. We were all just like, Whoo. But <laughs> but uh, uh, it's been a great run with them. You know, you've talked in other interviews about a lot of
1: your your inspiration. You know, as you mentioned before, you know, the Spielberg films and. Alan and uh, Vilmo Sigmund, of course, with Close Encounters, and Doug Slocum with Raiders. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are maybe some of the less obvious inspirations? I noticed in the promo for season three, there's a great sort of homage to Joe Rosenthal's Iwo Jima photograph.
0: Yes, I think uh, that, that was a Duffer's creation, and that's basically a uh, an antenna that uh, character Dustin is using to uh, connect with uh, this girlfriend that may or may not be fictional, um, who's living on the other side of the country, I suppose. But... That shot was, uh, the Duffers uh, designed that shot, and the one thing I brought to it is, uh, besides it being a a shot that that people can recognize from the Iwo Jima uh, photograph in World War II, I brought another reference to it as well, which was uh, the first Indiana Jones, when Harrison Ford found the right tomb to go into, and there's a a sunset shot with the sun behind him, and they're all working on a long lens, and I wanted wanted to get that shot in that moment, and I got pretty close to it. They did it better in in Indiana Jones, but... um, Everybody uh, let me wait till sunset and we got there and we shot it and, and it, it came out pretty good.
1: Well, describe sort of the, like the, the collaboration and the, the conversation between yourself and the Deffer brothers or other directors that you work with on the show about when to use or what references to use, you know, in the right places.
0: Well, I've said this before, but one of the interesting things we've done on Stranger Things and prep is to really just lock ourselves in a room, the three of us, and read the scripts together and sometimes act out the parts and they'll tell me their references and then maybe that'll inspire me to think of something else. And, and, uh, and we we work it out right there. We get a, we get a, we get a visual language between the three of us that we bring to uh, production when we start shooting. Um, It's a remarkable thing to do is to go through a script and act it out and draw and, and uh, be on Google Docs together, all three of us and uh, figuring it out and it's one of the most rewarding parts of working on the show because, you know, you just get so excited by uh, what's, what you're about to do and, and feel locked in. But also knowing that you have the, uh, the know-it-all between the three of us that we can change it on a day, knowing the history of the prep that we've done. Well, it's
1: unique in, as well in that, as we discussed earlier, um, this show is an unabashed homage. So you can incorporate references like that in a way that's much more organic to the whole process, as opposed to if you're shooting a film that's not supposed to be sort of an homage and you're kind of like inspired by something.
0: The Duffers make no qualms about it. They're in love with cinema in a way that I think sometimes maybe Quentin Tarantino is too. And Quentin does his own thing and and his movies are amazing. And I think the Duffers, uh, in their love of cinema, bring the same kind of feeling to their projects. We definitely reference films and they're different every year. This year, uh, I think we referenced Fast Times at Ridgemont High for some of the mall stuff. And that was so super fun to to shoot. We also, personally, I referenced T2 for some of the action scenes. And um, with the history of the show, just the look still has its bedrock in the origins of, you know, in E.T. and Stand By Me and Close Encounters. But, but we, we add a little something every single year. and. There's a little more horror in it this year too, I think, which probably is the, the George Romero influence on the Duffers. Not on me, as I told you, I'm scared of horror movies. So I don't get to see it. Well, <laughs> well, let's
1: talk a little bit about you know horror movies and the blend of science fiction. I don't know about anything horror. about horror movies. <laughs> well, but you might you know clearly from doing the show, you understand exactly the you know the visual tropes of the genre and. You know, the show is this fantastic hybrid of sci-fi and horror and the touches of fantasy. I mean, like in the Upside Down, the floating
0: bits, I always think of legend. I would disagree with you that that I know what I'm doing when it comes to horror. But this story to me is about friends sticking together and the connection between each other and honoring that. Um, And of course, yes, I understand there is science fiction in it as well as as horror, too. But uh, luckily, in filming it, it's not as scary as when you actually see it. For me, I think, again, I would say because I don't watch a lot of horror, it just comes out of the experience I've had in the past and where I am right now as far as knowing, you know, what I think is going to convey the emotion that the Duffers are are hoping to get. And we go from there, really, because I, I honestly have not seen a lot of the horror movies that they've referenced because, like I said, I'm a chicken, basically. It's just not your bad. No, let's I'll put on Fletch. Let's go watch Fletch. <laughs> you know, but... Uh... <laughs>
1: You know, the the sort of like that back and forth and that discussion regarding um, inspirations, how did that change from the first season to the second and now to the third season?
0: The first season, I think uh, our tone was not the most optimistic. And so we, you know, from all standpoints, including hair makeup, wardrobe, they all affected color. And we we didn't bring a lot of color into the first season. Things were not so uh, hopeful for our group of kids. In the second season, we uh, started bringing in a little bit more color and doing what we did in the first season, which I basically call it color separation, taking making sure that you have you know uh, if you have blues here and warms here that they don't get muddied up and there's not an overall tint to the show. But we took that and, and really uh, made it a little more fun, give it give it more uh, saturation. And uh, the third season takes place in summer vacation, and we're fully in the '80s now. So again, you have neons in wardrobe. It's no longer '82. You know, neon is, is full on. Um, all all those kind of colors uh, in bathing suits that you would see back then, and t-shirts and fluorescent greens. It's it's fully in there, and it's fully. We're now moving into like oh now we have this is a teenager show. We're looking. I'm, I'm thinking about um, uh, Breakfast Club. Uh, I'm thinking about well anything Molly Ringwald was in probably, but. Um, it's a lot of fun to it this season, and we've moved into like Carpenter, uh, James Cameron, and uh, Amy Heifel, um those sort of areas. But it wouldn't be Stranger Things if there wasn't a dark thing. To it. Well, also, even
1: too something as obvious as the change of seasons. This, you know, from what I've seen, the season is set during the summer. Yes, yeah. last, last time it was, it was middle of October or so. Yeah, um, that's that's a complete turnabout.
0: And it was really fun, too. Uh The guys wanted it to be bright, which is a scary thing to hear for a cinematographer. Nobody wants their film to be bright. You know, we were shooting, like, for instance, we would have, we had a pool scene that we had to shoot for many different days, because it had to be full sun. It had to get that joy of, of full sun, like in something like Caddyshack, you know, the pool scene there. Uh And it, if it was overcast, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't have cut. It wouldn't have worked. So we, it took a little while. And Summertime, shooting in the summer in Atlanta, there's thunderstorms every day, so uh, we had to wait that out. But that scene is something that normally I would not have ever shot a daytime exterior at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the summer and been been okay with it, you know, just because the the shadows are not that great. But it was fun. It was was liberating to do that and to just go for it. And it feels hot. They wanted it to feel hot.
1: You know, with the first two seasons down, you know, it's like maybe it started with this very heavy inspiration from E.T., and uh, and other films, but did the show itself start to develop its own unique
0: visual language for you? I think the show, you know, with the success of the show and we knew what we had, we didn't want to veer too far away from a cinematography standpoint what, what, you know, was so appealing about the show. But I I think that one of the things that we noticed and not noticed, one of the things we wanted to make sure of in season two and season three was that we didn't just phone it in and keep doing the same thing. We wanted to challenge ourselves and make sure that, that it wasn't just, you know, well, you know, we're going to do a push-in on, on Eleven here because she's about to do something. So the the visual language is, is still based in season one, but we started moving the camera a little bit more, too. Season one was more an homage to classic films, and we didn't want to use a lot of technology that was available back then. I really wanted it to feel like the show was made in the 80s. I, you know, it was really important to me to get a sense of maybe this thing, was, have a sense of like this thing was discovered and nobody saw this film ever and, and here it is. And here it is. We're going to put it out in 2017 for the first one. Then we started getting to season two and season three. And by the end of season one, we realized that we worked best when we had a 50-foot techno. And uh, that started being the thing, you know, for us. And it allowed us the freedom with a large cast to change a shot without having to, you know, relay track. And and it let us move the camera in a way that felt would be exciting for the show. Because the show is like a roller coaster. It just takes off the opening, um, every season it does that. I would say our, our use of the techno crane became came down almost like two or three times a week. We would have it on set. And not just the techno, but the Taurus base, so we could we could drive it around quickly and, and uh, get to the shot as fast as possible.
1: Well that clearly became very useful in sort of all these tunnel sequences in season two.
0: Yeah, that, that was really fun too because we had all the we built all those tunnels. Chris Trujillo, our production designer, built them actually and uh, designed them and built them. And we had to find a way to stick that crane in there and be able to have a little bit of movement, because, as you know, uh, when you're on a techno or any crane, you have a head that's an underslung and, and then we're in this eight foot high cave. How are we going to fit that in there? We're going to have just one angle. So we did a nodal mount on on the camera, which limited our pan and tilt, but it made the cam- made, made the whole body and arm uh, a little more a little tighter. So we had more space to kind of go up and down. and we had a little bit of movement left and right. Um, but we're basically going in and out. I mean that's that's what except we had a we had a half tunnel built as well where we could do side shots. but um, that really helped us uh, get the movement down um, in the tunnels from a technical standpoint because uh, I was just really worried that it was just always going to be the same same height, and then you know the whole thing is blocking any lighting I needed to do from above, so that gave me a little bit of room to mount a little something on the camera as well uh, when they got super close, but um, that was a cool thing. I hadn't worked with a nodal, nodal head before in that context.
1: You've talked about some in of the interviews as well, but you know, there's this incredible creative use of practicals in the show, and they're often very 70s, 80s kind of specific. Yeah. And even too, like a few of them, it's almost like, wow, did they get that from uh, the prop department Universal because it was used in E.T.? I don't know, but it, it kind of reminds me of something.
0: You know? <laughs> well, I said it before. Jess Royals are uh, on set uh, or set to decorate, I forget the actual terminology, but she worked with Chris production design and uh, she and I work closely with about practicals and using practicals and she's a huge fan of it as am I you know if I can have an actor come into a practical you know that seems like it should be there it just it just feels more real and with today's digital cameras and the ASAs that are available to us you can really do a lot with uh with lighting with practicals but Jess is Jess I often say in a scene where where we have practicals uh and she's put them in in a way that really helps me out I always say lighting by Jess um but I love working with practicals. Um, I think it's, it, it motivates the light in, in the interior. Um, I like people like you know, I like to see them and uh, it just helps form like a, a reality-based uh, in, environment versus having light and not seeing the light.
1: Does your crew often like change them out, re- rewire them or anything like that to make it more production friendly and use the
0: shape of that practical or? I. I only to just make sure the light is working, I, I think. I mean, in Stranger Things, we had a lot of things that had to be uh, wired into a, a, a dimmer board to flicker, um, including all the Christmas lights uh, and the lamps, too. So a lot of times, I think that they've, they've learned to have them all on a dimmer so that they can, they can do that. Even if I say, we're not going to flicker them, you never know. We as we get deeper into the show, we all of a sudden have to go back to the Bible of Stranger Things. And we realize that the fans at this point know more about the fabric and the Bible of the story, the religion of the story, than, than we do. Um, so we have to honor that and make sure, you know, oh, this flicker here, I don't think it would flicker here. It means the Demogorgon's close, and I don't think he's that close enough yet. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't flicker it. And it's like, okay, well, only, it only flickers when the Demogorgon comes, but now we have these other things. And, and uh, it, it's fun to think about because, you know, you really don't want to let the fans down.
1: Well, because they've picked up this visual language that you're using yeah. and, and they've studied it carefully.
0: Yeah. 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 You don't want to do anything that's contrary to the uh, the expectation. Well, you don't want to be like, oh, that would never happen. Well, none of this would ever happen. But, you know, it's true. It's like you want to, you know, for the storyline, you want to be as truthful to the, to the story as you can be. Well, how did
1: the, you know, the StarCourt shopping mall that we sort of glimpse in uh, the promo for season three, how did that offer opportunities to go sort of go wild with practicals? And tell me a little bit about that whole setting.
0: That's incredible. Uh, again, Chris Trujillo um, and, and his team built this mall. Well, it was a mall that was ge- uh, getting ready to be torn down and came in and uh, they made it so that anywhere you look, 360, you were in 1985. Not only that. Then you go into the Gap in '85, and there's Gap clothes from 1985. You go into a, a jewelry store, and it's the jewelry from 1985. You go into a bookstore, and all the books are from 1985. It was incredible. And you know, the Starcourt Mall is pretty much, uh, I think, the homage to Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Mall Life and those films. Who was the director that did uh, Breakfast Club? Is John Hughes? John Hughes, of course. Um, all the all the films that he did. Uh, there's probably a mall in every one of them. But that was really interesting. And then, of course, wiring it, getting it to possibly flicker. For the finale for the end of it uh end of the series a season that was about a month and a half long lighting project in there that we set up and before we even started shooting and then i had a crew in there and they pretty much knew what we wanted and and did it all and uh i think john is the is the rigging gaffer he he did an incredible job on it
1: has has the lighting approach for
0: the sort of the void and the upside down? You mentioned that maybe it, it changed the approach to it, or not that I'm aware of. That that's been sort of set in stone from the beginning. I think that the idea of what is the upside down goes from the black void to um, you know the woods and and, and places that uh, that are just you know uh, the other side of, of of earth. The only thing we did do is we had flocking uh, for all those little particles in season one and. Uh, via, well, we didn't have it in season one. VFX that they would they would work on it, and they came up with something that was just looked exactly the same. So we didn't bother with flocking. Maybe that was just season three, but uh, there was no flocking in season three. VFX took it over. Paul Graff was our VFX supervisor, and, and uh he did a, a great job with with seeing those spores flying around. I mean, as organic as they were, they're still flying around. We still have to wear masks, and and uh, it's a hundred degrees outside, and and hard to keep the studio cool. I'm very happy not to have those anymore. But uh, the upside down was a very simple thing. We knew we wanted it to be cool. And with the advancement of technology with the digital cameras, now I could just rate the camera down to its lowest color reading, which I think is like 2200 even. And then that would force the tungsten lights blue. And we didn't have to do a lot of changes, uh, like swap out heads and gels. And it worked out really well for us uh, creatively uh, and was a huge time saver.
1: How does having new characters add to the evolution of a show's look? The inclusion of Dockray Montgomery as Billy in season two, his character added this different dynamic, this different element, and I thought allowed you to do certain different kinds of shots, specifically because of his character.
0: Well, Dacre Montgomery who plays Billy in the show. uh, With that came a a new kind of character that was uh, a bit of a bully, a bit of of a, of a hot shot, a womanizer. And, uh, clearly somebody who had issues that we found out about later on. But it enabled us to really, we wanted him to basically terrorize the kids. So, um, you know, you had, uh, we had maybe a little bit more movement with him. We had, we had uh, wider and closer lenses on him. It was an opportunity to just uh, push that element that we hadn't seen outside of, you know, of of monsters chasing kids before. So, um, and in season one, Uh, Well, in season one we had a practical monster, uh, and in season two and three it was mostly uh, VFX taking over. But Billy uh, Daker's super fun to shoot and um, funny and scary at the same time. Which um, since that Jonathan Demme movie, um, something wild that was scary and funny at the same time. And I've been obsessed with like how Ray Liotta played that that character. I kind of went back and looked at, at something wild a bit for how how that character was filmed. Very similar, kind of. (laughs) That ass, <laughs>
1: the razor's edge of uh charming and and uh, yeah. psychopathic
0: completely <laughs> yeah
1: you shot season two with uh the red weapon helium cameras and uh like primes yes um did you basically carry over that basic combination for the third season or did, did you make some changes
0: well we've shot with red on season one and um again like i said we have a look on uh, stranger things that uh we love and 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 is, is appreciated by the fans. And we didn't want to move too far away from it, but there have been advances in technology at like almost every year now with RED. So um, we were also able to uh, shoot at a higher resolution with that newer camera. And um, that helped us out in VFX uh, as well, as the show became uh, more comfortable with, with uh, visual effects and posts. Season three, uh, we had the opportunity to go with a large format camera. RED had just put out the uh, Monstro sensor, I tested it and uh, against other cameras, which performed beautifully as well, but it made sense to stick with the red like a combination and, and Leica had the Thalias which just come out. And I think we uh, added a couple Sigmas uh, on the wider end that weren't available in the Thalias at the time and the Sigmas did beautiful. But this season has, a, uh, I think it's 8K to 7K extraction. And um, I'd like to think that there's a little more bokeh in the show, even on uh, wider shots that make it a little more cinematic. Um, as well, so we'll see. I'm I'm looking. I'm, I'm a fan as well. I'm looking forward to watching the whole thing together and see if people notice it. I feel that the show looks a little bit larger this year. But yeah, we stuck with red and with uh, like because it's been a pretty winning combination for us so far.
1: And it handled that summer heat, it delivered that summer heat that you were looking for in the, in the highlights.
0: It, it definitely did. As you probably know, the Leicas are a little warmer than the other lenses and it's something that uh, we embrace on the show a little bit. And uh, it definitely helped out for the for summer. I think the show looks great this year. I'm really excited for it. It's a little different, but it's still the same.
1: How has uh, your contrast or color values sort of changed for the season as our characters enter this new phase? Of life called high school. Um, We've talked a little bit about summer, talked a little bit about the production design and the use of color, but what are you doing either in camera with LUTs or in post to help accentuate that as well?
0: This season in Stranger Things, uh, with a new camera and and, uh, different lenses, uh, we had to sort of recreate the LUT that we started with. Skip Kimball is our senior colorist on the show and responsible for final color and he and I work together. Uh, it's very simple. We bring in a lut from the previous year, or as close to it as we can, and we start doing tests with it, start shooting with it, and then I send back notes. And then he literally emails over another lut, and uh, and we get going with it. We have a very good communication for for that. We use basically one lut for everything on Stranger Things, which is a you know fairly contrasty uh, look. And then as far as color goes. Um, one thing I started doing on this show, too, which I touched on a minute ago, was uh, having color separation, a lot of it, not just having, like, you know, everything warm lights here and warm lights there. I'd always want to have a feeling of coolness in the shadows and, and warmth and, and, and the highlights. And I pushed that a little bit more uh, this year, not really going cobalt bluish, but, you know, having that, like, 4,500 Kelvin uh, blue when you're at 5,600 uh, outside really was a, a nice way to balance things out with the warm, warm tones of tungsten. Uh, and the 5600 of the blue coming in, um, it wasn't too blue. And the warmth was definitely accentuated. But again, for the summertime, that was something that, was really, uh, that we really wanted to do.
1: When you do these kinds of tests, um, what are you watching your footage on? Is it monitors? Are you watching it projected? Or...
0: I'm watching it on monitors and um, on our, our high-end, um, I guess they're OLEDs, uh, uh, Sony's. And because we're in Atlanta, because Skip is out, on the West Coast, it's not really feasible for me to go and look at it projected and in and season one, I don't think there was representation yet by the post production facility to have projected. Uh, go to a nice theater and see it projected there, but um, you know the trust between the trust I have with skip is strong and that's worked out well for me to see it, you know, on, on the monitors on set and be able to judge from there. The basic look and the color of it is, you know, what I see on set is what the show winds up looking like. I try to shape the show as much as I possibly can on set with, uh, with cuts and flags and giving it a little, you know, elliptical kind of kind of thing going. But um, when I can't do it, it's super easy for Skip to to do it, and he brings things to it that are amazing. I was
1: just curious, you know, as a fan. I mean, have you been able to see any episodes projected on a large screen?
0: I have, yeah. Now, we also add a little bit of film grain to it for regular screens. So when you see it, when we saw it last season, season two projected on a on a big screen, um, that grain was a little bit bigger than I would want anyone to see it. It felt a little bit like um, you know it was meant made for like everyone has like 55 inch television or so. It's meant for a home environment, but the show looked great. Uh, the color totally is held up, and I think that uh, the the grain factor. Uh, Something I felt uh, that we do in post, the grain factor was a little too much for for a projector. But uh, that's something that Netflix and Duffers, I'm sure, in any projection coming up, are, are, are going to be on top of.
1: How did you feel? I mean, from a uh, artistic standpoint, seeing your work, you know, displayed in that sort of completely different kind of venue.
0: It's thrilling to see the show projected. It's a thrill to be here talking about it and seeing all those little faces, you know, 10 feet tall, you know, uh, up on the screen. Um, you know, I've, I'm predominantly, a, a, I guess, a television cinematographer is what you would, you would say these days. But that's only because the work is just so strong in television. So, yeah, seeing, seeing it projected, you know, honestly, seeing anybody's work projected is amazing. It's, um, we're all fans here.
1: Please correct me if I'm wrong, but my pre- impression is that the previous seasons were essentially approached as a single long movie and as I understand, they were completed as a whole in post. And it was only after the picture was locked in every episode and the effects completed and such that it went into a color grading process in order to make it a continuous grade through the whole project rather than by episode.
0: Is that correct? Well, I, Skip doesn't start color on the show and because the show doesn't come out like this week and next week. And, and it comes out when the whole thing's completed. So, yes, final color happens you know, when all, all the visual effects elements are in. And Skip uh, has the time allotted and he'll start with one and go all the way to episode eight. Um, And I know he watches the whole thing first so we can see the tone of it. And sits with the Duffer brothers uh, as well uh, who are highly involved. Um, And I'll send any notes in uh, that I have for it. I don't live in in California, I live in New York. uh, So it's not as easy for me to get out out here as often as I'd like to. But the show does, it basically gets finalized like a film, but we get finalized, not in a regular television schedule. Um, and the show has always wanted to be filmic and uh, and as much as, as a movie experience as, as humanly possible. So, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I think that that contributes to that feeling. I just feel as, as, you know, a viewer
1: myself that it has rendered a consistency from episode to episode that maybe would not exist otherwise if they were done individually.
0: Well, the reality is, too, when I first started Stranger Things, I was the only DP on the show. And then... The demands of the show and the demands of the brothers directing and writing were great, but um, they asked Sean Levy to come in and film a couple episodes, and I brought in Todd Campbell, who worked on Mr. Robot after he did the pilot, and he filmed those episodes and did it again in season two as well. But for season one and season two, there's only been two cinematographers, and I did the bulk of them in one and the bulk of them in two. And in season three, um, my duties were split up as the show gets bigger and bigger Um, We bought an alternate DP, Lachlan Milne, who who, uh, did a a wonderful job. I did four out of eight this season. So you have relatively, you know, where at some series you have a bunch of different directors and DPs coming in. This one has found that it works best when we keep the group as small as possible. And the Duffers are also overseeing, you know, the the guest director, whether it's Andrew Stanton or or Uta Breezewicz directs. They're looking at dailies and they're having their, putting their opinions in and uh, and. When they're not there, we can also call them for, you know, any time. I can text them. I'm like, would Eleven do this? Because it doesn't, you know, and they'd be like, no, she would do that. I'm like, okay, good. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's a pretty tight-knit family.
1: Did you get to work with Director Breswitz? I mean, also an ASC member.
0: I, I did, yeah. She did episodes five and six this year, and um, it was fun collaborating with her. She, uh, she came in and just knocked it out of the park.
1: Well, we, when we were talking before the interview, um, you, you talked about how like you like to do things that are kind of each project be something different and to not be trapped into sort of doing the same thing all the time. And, but are there opportunities in that sort of approach where you can have an experience of something that's completely different from what you're doing, but it still informs your creative process?
0: Oh, I think just the, the experience you have uh, as a cinematographer and the experience you gain informs everything that you do on your upcoming projects. For me, it's rewarding to not try the same sort of uh, thing twice. If I can, you know, um, try to try to do something different. It's more exciting to go from chasing, um, you know, with little kids and, and monsters around, uh, telling that wonderful story, than to going and being with a, a historical couple in New York. I love that. I don't want to just repeat myself or, or do like Stranger Things light, or, you know, I'm not, you know, the show has been so rewarding on so many levels that I'm, I'm certainly not that as interested in doing anything that's copycat or, or uh, derivative.
1: Well, how has um, being a a guest speaker and a teacher at uh, the School of Visual Arts and uh, the Brooklyn College School of Cinema, interacting with students, how has that allowed you to rethink your work and maybe your career, and what are students most interested in hearing
0: about? I started speaking with uh, with, with students fairly recently, and I have to, I owe it to Stranger Things, of that show, people want to hear about it, and uh, and they've been moved by the show, and, and they're inspired by it, and I take all that very, very seriously, especially when someone younger is wanting to be a cinematographer, or a director, or wanting to know how to get into business, and social media has opened that up. I, I didn't even realize it, on Instagram that there was a whole messaging section there for years, and my daughter showed me. She's like, "Dad, you've got four hundred messages." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And there were all, and I went through all of them. A lot of them were, you know, "How do I get on Stranger Things?" and uh, "And can you introduce me to Millie?" and and uh, and those, you know, obviously nothing I can do in, in, for that. But then there's occasionally someone saying, "Would you mind speaking to my class in South Africa via Skype?" Which I just did a month ago or so, which is incredibly rewarding. And talking to uh, young people who want. To do what I do, I mean, it was when I started this business. I, I you know, I was a commercial PA, and I didn't know anybody. And uh, and to go from that to where I am now is, uh, you know, th- there's a story there that can help other people get to find the position they want to be in. They want to be in this business, but I love talking to uh, to students these days. And I, I used to have complete stage fright when a camera's in front of me or in front of a crowd, even seven people. I find now that I'm pretty much, you know, you can't shut me up, but it, it's very rewarding. And, uh, and I'll always respond to it, someone who's seeking advice. You know, it's nice to be able to think that you know, you're helping somebody out.
1: And when we were talking before, um, we, had, we were having a, a chat before the interview, we were talking about how you've been very pleased that people are going, after seeing Stranger Things, are going back to the films that helped inspire oh, right. yourself with Duffer Brothers. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of that feeling and that dynamic?
0: As far as our show being a source material uh, for people going to see other uh, shows that we've we've based our look on or, or storylines were similar from the 80s and the 70s, it's really rewarding to hear that the show inspired anyone to 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 go back and, and look, at, look at these films that uh, we adore, basically. Uh, it just happened today, even. Someone was saying to me that uh, <laughs> they went back and saw E.T. And, and other films and uh, have a better appreciation for that. And as somebody who's a, I mean, I have a, my memory for some things is terrible, but my memory for films and directors and cinematographers and also liner notes and records uh, seems to be still pretty pretty good. So I can really appreciate talking about it and turning other people on to people that I've been inspired by and in their work. I think that most people feel that way. I remember after season one, um, the Duffers pulled me aside and, and they like, yeah, you know, when I show you this letter that we just got, and it was from Steven Spielberg, and he was talking about how he lo- he loves figure things and he loves the fact that the Duffers took something that he did as a young young director and made it their own and and put something out there that was an homage and and uh, reading that you know together with the three the three of us together I looked at it I'm like should we just stop now This is like I feel like my career I should just stop I end on, end on that note you know but uh, people are inspired by uh, you know. We're all inspired by, you never know where it's going to come from.
1: Both Stranger Things and Mr. Robot, which you shot the pilot for, Mm -hmm. um, they both tapped into a a zeitgeist in the television viewing audience, and two incredibly different shows, incredibly different visual approaches. Yeah. But they both found a a deep appreciation. What what do you think that, that these shows say about the television audience and how thirsty they are for high quality visuals to have a cinematic experience?
0: I think Stranger Things and Mr. Robot, one of the things they have in common is, is redemption and and, uh, and, and hope. In, in Mr. Robot, for instance, the pilot of Mr. Robot, uh, Elliot played by Rami Malek, was a fractured character. And Sam Esmail, the director, uh, well, he was the producer at the time, wanted to really convey that uh, with framing, really extreme framing that I think that we probably pulled back on a little bit in, in the pilot episode. But it was completely liberating to maybe have have eyelines uh, be different and to embrace that in a way that Threw you off a little bit about this character. The pilot was, was a super rewarding to shoot and super cool to shoot and being around Rami uh, was, uh, you know, he's, the show owes him everything. He's, he's incredible and super lovely, but. Um...
1: Well, you know, in, in, you know, sort of my experience in, in talking with other people who have really turned to television for uh, more envelope stretching visual looks and yeah. for a more adventurous approach to storytelling, um, you know, in the re- in recent years, I mean, I can, you know, rattle off a number of shows that like just they could not have been made that way just a few years earlier um, because I right. feel like there's a competition in television for audience, obviously. Right. And producers are recognizing that a strong visual look and, uh, you know, high quality look that's integrated into the story and the tenor and the tone of the narrative is going to resonate with the audience.
0: Well, you hit it right there. The the look of the show cannot betray the the script. It has to enforce it. And it can't be something that's just done for just to look cool. I mean, I, I've never gravitated myself towards films uh, as far as working on them that just wanted to move the camera for the sake of moving the camera. And in Stranger Things and Mr. Robot, we did the same thing. The camera always hasn't moves with intent. And the intent in Mr. Robot was to show this character, to not really reveal what was really up with him, but to really show that he was a good soul, but also fractured and in need of redemption and, and he had some issues with himself as well so by framing this world that seems so normal in a different way and looking at it in a different way and seeing that maybe things aren't what they what they seem you know and they did that a little bit in, in, in the matrix I think that, that would be an inspiration for that um, it really enabled us to free up traditions and rules of photography at times we, ch- we took ourselves to a point where like, I think we've gone too far we would back it off but uh, that was one of the coolest things about working on that pilot. Just being able to do something a hundred degrees away from what you've just done before and to throw, throw some things out the window, but not really, but keeping the rule book at least in your back pocket, you know.
1: Is there a particular sequence or scene or shot from the show that you, you're you especially proud of or that you feel like is, you know, your touchstone from your own show that you sort of, you know, base the rest of your, your approach on?
0: I mean, there are, I have some favorite shots from season three and I, I feel like I need to sort of look at the show again to, to, to remind myself what they were and I, I've mentioned this one before in other interviews but one of the opening shots in episode one this year is this arm uh, across a pool that lands on four of our moms and um, the shot is reminiscent of maybe Jaws uh, when the camera is that low in the water and I think they actually got it lower in the water we we're on a crane, so we were just skimming it. But getting all those kids to get as close to the lens as possible without hitting them was a bit tricky. I mean, you remember that scene in Jaws? I mean, you're right in the water. You're right. There. You're in the water in Jaws. And I wanted to ca- capture that as well. And then coming off that and lifting up and finding Carol buono and full makeup and her friends, uh, it, it just reminded me of, of my mom and seeing people in makeup in the 70s at the beach. It just it cracks me up because it doesn't make any sense. Why would you be in makeup at the beach? You know, or at the pool. Uh, but the show the shot was really fun to do and and. Uh, hard on our ADs, we had, uh, you know, so many people to deal with and with the safety of the pool and uh, kids in the pool and then the, to land on Carol like that. It was a really fun shot. I think it's cut up a little bit. We were hoping it wouldn't be, but, it, you know, the pool was pretty, it was a little bigger than what we were hoping to get. So it was a bit of a move going from a kid jumping off a diving board. But it was it was a fun shot and not really stereotypical. It's full bright, full sun, and um, it sort of reintroduces you to and says things are going to be different on stranger things this year, which is uh, sort of the intent of it.
1: Well, this interview is uh, again to remind everyone. Uh, you know, we, we are recording this at the ASC Clubhouse, so you'll have to pardon some construction noise or uh, you know errant errant sounds. Uh, we're not in a studio, but this is your first visit back to the Clubhouse since you became a member back yeah. in August, I believe, of last year.
0: That's right. Yeah, I, I came to the ASC Awards, and and I've been. I live in New York, so I don't get to get out here that often. But I, uh, you know, I was like, there's no way I'm coming out here and not going to the ASC Clubhouse, and thankfully. This uh, overlap with it, but um, it's so cool to be here. It's uh, I'm just sitting here. I'm looking at you, but there's pictures of people that came before. Well, a lot of people, and it's it's it's, it's remarkable to be in a place that celebrates all of this, and people are like-minded and and not, and, and we all have opinions, and it's it, there's no one way to do all this. So it's certainly amazing to talk to people that can debate where a key light should go or something. Like that. <laughs> Well, what, what what he's referring
1: to is uh, there's uh, here in the uh, the boardroom at the clubhouse there's a wall of portraits of past presidents of, of uh, the ASC, and uh, we'll include a, a shot of that in our library.
0: Yeah. Runs. Was it W. C. Fields that said, "I would want to be a member of any club that would have me as its member"? Or who who said that? I think it was Groucho. It was Groucho. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm happy to be here, and I feel I'm. I, I you know, hopefully I can uh, I can make everybody proud. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.